We're going to jump into this series uh, again, and the series that we're, we're doing right now is God Is, and each week we're looking at a different characteristic or attribute or truth about who God is, and children can go downstairs, yes. <laughs> God loves children. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. Uh, so there is a children's ministry downstairs. I forgot to say that at the beginning, so if you have children or you are a child and you want to go downstairs, now's the time. So each week we're looking at a different truth about God, and this week we're going to look at the truth that God is unchanging. So God is who he is. He reveals to us who he is in the scripture, and we're going to take a look at that, but we're going to reveal the reality about God that he is unchanging. And so if you've studied theology at all, you might, be, you might have heard the word immutable, um, to mutate means to change. Immutable means not to change. It means cannot change, is consistent. And so we're looking at um, this unchanging attribute of God this week. And I just want you to think about it. Before we dive into this, are you, you, you've all seen people that they do change in bad ways, right? I'll tell you a little story. <clears throat> um, so Billy Graham, he's probably one of the fam- most famous names in Christianity. He died a few years ago. Um, But he was a famous evangelist. Like, he literally traveled all over the world, and he preached about Jesus Christ and saw millions of people make a decision for for Jesus. One of the things that Billy Graham was famous for was that during his lifetime, he met with every single president of the United States and had conversations about Jesus with them. So so throughout his whole life, he met with every single president. He even met with the queen. Uh, if, if you've ever watched the show The Crown on Netflix, they actually, uh, in one of the early episodes, they show the Queen meeting with Billy Graham. So he was famous for meeting <clears throat> with all of the powerful people of the world. One of the people that he became really good friends with is Richard Nixon. And so he was a president of the United States. And if you know the name Richard Nixon, you know that he's famous for the Watergate scandal, right? We're all, okay? So... Years ago, when Richard Nixon was president, there was this great big scandal. Um, it was the Watergate scandal. Nixon had to leave being the president, all the stuff. And there was all this stuff, you know, that was going on around that. That was, uh, it shook people, you know, that somebody in that position of power could be that uh, two-faced or scandalous and saying one thing and doing another. Now, what was interesting, I read this biography of Billy Graham, and it was done by a guy that he wanted to, like, take a really honest look at Billy Graham's life and not you know, just paint him as this perfect person, but just look at the reality of the way that he lived. Like, what mistakes did he make? Um, that kind of thing. And Billy Graham actually authorized this biography. So he, he gave permission to this guy, William Martin, who's like a, who's a Harvard or a Yale guy, to do a, a major investigation in his life and to ask the question, like, is, did Billy Graham, you know, was he the real deal? You know, and, and just to take an honest look at his life. And, and this, the end result of this was that um, this guy said of Billy Graham, like, he was the real deal. He really loved Jesus, but he wasn't perfect. And, and there's a chapter about Billy Graham and Richard Nixon where Nixon, it, it gets into the Watergate scandal, and, and Billy thought that he was having these incredibly meaningful conversations with Nixon. And, and in Billy Graham's mind, he, he had this, this excitement because he thought, wow, Nixon is a real Jesus follower. Like, he is, he is all in for Jesus. He loves the Lord. And there's an opportunity here to really make Jesus famous. That's what Billy Graham was all about. 
But it became clear in the relationship that Nixon had other ideas about his relationship with Billy Graham. So Nixon was a politician, and he wanted votes, right? That's kind of what politicians want, right? You follow me? <laughs> Do you ever get that feeling? You're listening to a politician, you're like, I don't know if they care about me. <laughs> I think they want me to care about them, but I don't always get the sense that they care about, about me, right? And so Nixon <clears throat> wanted votes. And when the Watergate scandal came to light, uh, the, the author of this biography talked about Billy Graham's response. And when, when the tapes were released, the Watergate, the famous tapes, Billy Graham was just shocked hearing Richard Nixon's language, all kinds of cursing and swearing and the stuff he was saying. And, and it was like Billy Graham just couldn't understand. He's like, this guy is, I thought he was a brother. I thought he was this fellow Jesus follower. I thought he was as concerned about the gospel as I was. And the chapter ends with saying uh, that Nixon snookered Billy Graham. Billy Graham was kind of taken in by Nixon. And what's interesting is if you follow the, the rest of Billy Graham's career, he still had a relationship with all the presidents, but he wasn't as hopeful when he was walking the halls of power. So prior to this, in this, this confrontation sort of with, with Nixon, Billy Graham was like, he had this idea that, you know, powerful people, if they get on board with the gospel, it'll be a really good thing. It's going to benefit the world. But he, he came to realize that, you know, these, these powerful people, a lot of times have mixed motives. They're, they're not the real, they change, right? And so Billy Graham was snookered, this is William Martin's words, by Nixon. He was taken in by it. But he, he learned a valuable lesson after that, and so he still had relationships with, with these powerful people, but he wasn't, he didn't go about it the same way. But what he learned was that people often say one thing and do another. I saw a video online the other day, and it was making fun of people that, uh, maybe you've experienced this, but have you ever felt awkward when you get two groups of friends together in the same room? Okay, it, was this, it was this video about somebody who invited their church friends and their work friends together for their party, and they were awkward. You ever, you ever have been in a situation like that? Right? Um, sometimes in our own lives, we are one way with one crowd, and then we're another way with another crowd. Right? Have you ever, like, it, it's easy to look at someone like Nixon, and we can kind of sit with our, our judgmental, we can cross our arms and be judgmental, like, what a, what a loser, right? Or maybe you do that with, with the politicians we have here in Canada. Maybe, maybe we kind of sometimes cross our arms and we think, oh, they're so two-faced. You know, such hypocrites. What terrible people. Losers, right? Like, we have to sometimes, but then, if we're honest, do you ever look at your own life and, like, with an honest kind of set of eyes and go, yeah, but sometimes I do that. You ever felt that? You ever noticed that, you know, that there's times when you're super passionate about something or you're, you know, you have a real deep conviction about something, but then you're around a different crowd of people and all of a sudden it's not as important. And you ever feel at times in your life where there's like maybe a bit of a two-face there in your own, maybe it's just me, maybe it's just the, <laughs> the pastor today, right? But I think that that's a reality that, that we wrestle with. And that this truth about God, there's something different about God. He's unchanging. So God reveals to us who he is, and one of the most comforting uh, truths that come from that revelation is that when God reveals to us who he is, he says, this is who I am, and it's, it will never change. God is, he doesn't mutate. He doesn't become better. He doesn't become worse. He is who he is. He's unchanging, and that is incredibly comforting. There's probably some things about God that maybe we wish would change. Maybe there's some of the harsher sides of God that we're like, oh, I wish that wasn't true, or I wish that would change, right? But I just want you to, uh, to think about this morning, the fact that God doesn't change is actually 
comforting because when we go to him, we know who it is we're approaching. He's the same every single time and to every single person. He's not concerned about what one crowd thinks about him versus what another crowd thinks about him. He is the same always. And that is incredibly comforting. And so we're going to look today at Exodus chapter 34 and where we're going to jump in. And and verses 6 and 7 of this passage, and so I want you to just read this carefully as I, because it'll be up on the screen. You can read along with me. But verses 6 and 7, you might not know this, they're the most famous verses in the Old Testament. So if I asked you today uh, to quote John 3.16, maybe some of you wouldn't know that passage, but probably a lot of you would know John 3.16. I would say John 3.16 is probably the most famous Bible passage today, right? Most people would be familiar with it if you've been around church for a few years, okay? Uh, this, where we're going to read, this is actually the most famous passage of the Bible in the Old Testament, and it gets re-quoted in the Old Testament over 20 times. I think it's 27 plus times that this passage gets referred to. And the reason it gets referred to so much, it's because it's the first time ever that God gives an explanation of who he is. And so it gets quoted and quoted. And when people run into trouble, when when they're on the verge of being judged by God and bad things happening, they go back to this revelation of who God is. And they they use it to remind God. They're like, God, this is who you are. It's something that people rely on throughout the rest of the scripture. And so the, the context of this uh, we're going to jump in uh, the story kind of partway in. Uh, but you, you'll remember uh, Moses, he's leading the people of Israel, okay? And they've escaped from Egypt. They've escaped from slavery. They were in slavery for 400 years. Moses delivers them. God sends 10 plagues. He does this miraculous deliverance. The, the Israelites walk through the Red Sea on dry land because God parts it. He does this incredible, these, these incredible miracles. And then while they're in the desert, okay, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he's having this direct, like, face-to-face conversation with God. God is revealing himself in the burning bush, okay? And, so, and, and God tells Moses some very specific things about how the people should relate to him. So Moses had this incredible conversation with God. And, and, and the scene, we're going to jump in, it's right after this happens. Moses comes down off Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. They've only recently escaped Egypt. And he's got the Ten Commandments in his hands, these two stone tablets. And he's walking down off the mountain. And God has just told Moses, like, I'm the only one for you to worship. All of your allegiance has to be to me. So he's walking down off the mountain. And he sees Israel, this million people in the desert. And they're all worshiping a false idol that they'd made. And they're dancing around, and there's like, you know, sexual perversion. There's all this horrible stuff happening. And Moses, I think he's the only guy in the Bible that ever does this. He breaks all Ten Commandments at the same time, okay? Like, he's just like, he's got all Ten Commandments in his hands. He's walking, and he is angry because he sees the people disobeying God. He just throws the Ten Commandments down, and they all break at the same time, okay? And so this is, this is what's just happened. And God is so angry at the people and, and ver, uh, chapter 33 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, and it's just before what we're going to read. In chapter 33, God is so angry at Israel. He says to Moses, he says, Moses, I'm just going to wipe out all these people. They, they obviously, they hate me. They've spat in my face. They've, they've sinned in grievous ways. And so I'm just going I'm, I'm to wipe them out and I'll start over with you. You will be the most powerful man in the world, basically. And Moses Just like Jesus, and it's so powerful. If you go back and read chapter 33, it's incredible. Moses says to God, so in that moment, Moses' response isn't, yeah, God, I hope you do that. Moses' response is, God, I would rather rather die. Like, 
I would rather, if these people can't be forgiven by you, then just take my name out of your book. Like Moses puts himself on the line and says, God, I, 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 want, I so badly want these people to be forgiven that I would actually give my life for them. That actually points to Jesus. That's what's going on there, right? So God sees this in Moses. It's this incredible um, conversation. And in this conversation, Moses asks God a question that I think if you have a desire for God in any way, shape, or form, you probably desire the same thing. He says, God, please just show me your glory. You know, I've heard all about you, and, and here's this burning bush, and I'm having conversation with you, but like, I want to see you. I want to see the fullness of who you are. I want to see your glory. He says, God, show me your glory. This is in chapter 33. And where we're going to pick up is right after that. And this, this is actually uh, God's answer to that prayer that Moses prayed. So 34 verses 1 to 10 is, is the answer to that prayer. I'm just going to pray before we read it uh, that we'll hear the Lord's voice. Lord, I, just, I pray that as we read your word that we would hear your voice, not just someone's take on it, not my take not even our own perspective, but God, that we would actually hear you today. Uh, and God, just I pray that as we uh, get uh, a clearer picture of who you are, that you would give us confidence in how we approach you, Lord. And we love you. We look to you. May we hear you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 34, 1 to 10. This will be on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, and I love how God says this, which you broke. (laughs) God God is not pulling any punches here. He's like, I'm going to, two new tablets, because I'm going to replace the ones that you broke, Moses. Okay? Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up, Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord, God was like, it was pretty tough, right? So God made, did you catch that? He's like, chisel out two tablets and then walk up the mountain. So there's a little punishment here for Moses. Uh, God's like, you're, you're going to have to carry these up the mountain. Then I'm going to chisel them. Then you're going to carry them back down the mountain. Okay, Moses is, is learning his lesson here. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the cloud and he stood there with him. Can you imagine? And he proclaimed his name. And you don't, we don't see this in English, but God proclaims his name. We talked about his name, Yahweh, uh, a few weeks ago, where God says, I am who I am. God just is, okay? Proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and he worshiped. Lord, he said, if I found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. And and Justin talked to us last week about covenants. I'm making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. And so today, the, I just, my desire in today's message about God being unchanging is to answer three questions. And these, these should be on the screen. It says, what is, 
What is it about God that doesn't change? Does God contradict himself? If you, if you read through the scriptures carefully, it does seem like there's a contradiction in here. And then third, what does this teach us about how we are to relate to God? And so first, what is it about God that doesn't change? And, and this will be uh, on the screen. I want to read verses 6 and 7 again. And th- these are the verses that I was saying. These are the most famous verses in the Old Testament. If you were, if you were a pre-Jesus Israelite, this was the John 3.16 of the nation of Israel. This is what people quoted over and over again. Whenever they talked about God, they went back to these verses because this was the first time God speaks out and gives an explanation about who he is. It says, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, so Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So this is God's revelation of himself. You have to remember that at this time, people didn't have a Bible. They couldn't, like you and I, go pick up a Bible and read about what God is like. This morning we were in prayer and Laureen, Laureen mentioned, she just, she, we were praying and she just spontaneously started to pray to God about how grateful she is for technology, that we have access to really great preachers and books and resources where we learn about God. Well, in ancient Israel, they didn't have that access iTunes wasn't doing well back then, right? You couldn't just access a podcast. So this is the first time that people are hearing about who God is. This is the first time that they get like an explanation about who God is. And you know what's important about it? And and Justin actually touched on it last week. He talked about how in, in these days, child sacrifice was a common practice, Okay, so in, in the days around which the, the, the Israelites lived, like for people that served other gods, they often would sacrifice their children to these false gods. It was like, it was a horrible practice. There were gods that were set up where, where there was this image of a god that they made out of stone and, and the god's hands would kind of be like this and they would light this image on fire from within and they would put their children in, into the, the hands of these stone gods, and they would offer them up as sacrifices. Like, it was brutal. It was horrible. It was disgusting. It was something God actually hated. Justin talked about it last week. He, God was saying very clearly, I'm nothing like that. So that this, this image you have of God, this idea that you have of God, I'm nothing like those gods. So in God's revelation, when he's, when he's explaining who he is, you know, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, he's revealing, like, Guys, this is what I'm like. When you come to me, you can rely on this being true about me. Because there were all these messed up ideas about who God was and what he was like. And God wanted his people to know what he was truly like, what he is truly like. And it's comforting. If you're a follower of Jesus today, this description of who God is, it is comforting. Because when when life hits you and things get messed up and you get these thoughts in your mind of like, well, God must be just this mean-spirited, cold being that just wants to punish you and beat up on you, we can go back and go, no, no, God, God, this, he's revealed who he is, and he doesn't change. He's consistent. His mood doesn't change in the morning. He doesn't change based on the crowd that he's, he's dealing with at that time. Like, God does not change. He's revealing what he's like. There's a slide up, up on there that um, God is revealing what he's like so that his people can know him and can count on him being this way forever. So as God reveals himself 
to you and I, what the reason he does that is because he wants you and I to know we can count on him being this way always. So when we face suffering and when we face tragedy and when we're faced with ideas of, of, that come from the world sometimes about who God is or what the world's like, we can go, no, no, like God has revealed himself so that I can be confident that this is who he is and it does not change. He's, he's consistent. And so in the next slide, he's compassionate. And I just pulled out the seven different attributes that this chapter reveals. He's compassionate, he's gracious, slow to anger, full of love, faithful, forgiving, and he's judging. And we'll get to that um, in a minute. Now, I want to show you uh, how Moses used this, okay? So, so we're, uh, we're still looking at what is it about God that doesn't change? So two years, so this, this scene that we're talking about where Moses is, is having this interaction with God, God's showing his glory, this is two years after the people have escaped Egyptian slavery, okay? Now, this is, this is a really important part of the story. We, we all know, how, how long did the Israelites wander in the desert before they got to the promised land? Yeah, 40 years, okay? So it was an 11-day journey. So if you were going to go from Egypt to the promised land, it's an 11-day journey. But they kind of wandered around, and God was revealing himself. And so for the first two years, God wanted to teach the people of Israel what he was like. He wanted to give them the law. He wanted to show them how to be in community with each other. He wanted to prepare them for getting into the promised land. So that was for two years. At the end of that two years, uh, they actually, the Israelites get right up to the edge of the promised land and they're about to enter and they, they've like, God has revealed himself. He's shown them who he is. They're right about to enter. And there's a famous story in the book of Numbers where Moses, the leader, he sends spies into the land. Okay. He sends these 12 spies into the land, and he says, go in, bring us a report of this promised land, and then come back. The spies come back from the promised land, and two of them, Caleb and Joshua, they're like, guys, listen, God is going to give us the victory. We can go in, we can take this promised land, we can live free, we can be the community God's called us to be, God is going to give us this, this victory. But 10 out of the 12, they bring a bad report, and they're like, they, they come back from the promised land, and they're like, there's no way we can do this. And they actually convince the people of Israel it would have been better to stay in slavery, okay? So they're like, they're like no, there's no way we're going to be able to, to like go in there and occupy the land. The people are too big. There's no way God can do this. And so they actually spread doubt through the minds of the hearts of all the Israelites. And what's crazy about this is that this is the same group of people. They've seen God split the Red Sea. They watched God deliver them from Egypt. They've seen God do incredible things. They've heard him reveal himself. But the people believe the ten instead of believing the two. And I think that's probably something a lot of us can relate to. Sometimes it's easier to believe negative. It's easier to give in to doubt than it is to give in to faith. And so there's another kind of scary scene where we see the judgment of God. God gets angry at the people of Israel because they just don't believe him. And he's like, guys, I've revealed to you who I am. I've, I've shown you my power. I've shown you my character. You know you can trust me. And, and they don't. And so God is angry. And he has another conversation with Moses where he says, I'm just going to wipe these people out. And, and I want you to, and this will be up on the screen. Moses, this is 38 years later. Or this is, this is before they go into their 40-year their, uh, uh, wandering. Moses reminds God of what God revealed to him. 
Listen to the prayer. In, it's in Numbers chapter 14, verses 17 and 19. Moses says, And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So, so God is angry at the people for what they've done, and he says, I'm going to bring judgment, because he revealed that he's a judge. And Moses reminds God and says, God, you revealed that you're compassionate and you're gracious, you're slow to anger, you're forgiving, and you're faithful. So we get this example. The reason that this passage of Scripture gets re-quoted so many times is because whenever people get to the point where they're about to like, endure the judgment of God, an intercessor, somebody who knows how to pray, reminds God and says, no, God, but you're, you're forgiving and you're loving and you're slow to anger. And that's how this is supposed to be used. The, the, the fact that God is a judge is true. And, and you know what? It's, honestly, it's, it's scary. To think about the judgment side of God is a scary thing. But the reason God reveals to us that he's gracious, slow to anger, forgiving, is because when we're about to face that, when we start to realize, like, I've messed up, we can fall back on what God has revealed about himself, which is that he is gracious and loving and slow to anger. And if you've ever been up, up close to where you just start to sense like the judgment of God or you've been aware of your own mess-ups or, or, or sins or failures, whatever you do, don't let that ter- cause you to turn from God. The reason this, this gets quoted over and over and over again in the Bible is because God's saying, this is how you should pray. When you're aware of your sin, when you're aware of your mess-ups, when you're aware of your failures, come to me because I'm forgiving and I'm compassionate and I'm slow to anger. His desire is to forgive. His desire is to relent. And it doesn't change. The second question is, God, does he contradict himself? So, uh, I got this, this rock. I was, <laughs> I was so happy. I was listening to Justin, and, and I heard him refer to the rock. And this has become kind of our, our uh, running analogy. So, uh, if you're new, so the rock represents God, okay? And, and these little weird stringy things are just, they represent God's attributes, okay? The fact that he's, he's true and he's kind and he's forgiving and he's, he's also a judge. You can't separate God's, who he is from him, okay? You can't, like, I can pull this off right now and I can just like kind of go, well, I just, I only like the forgiving, or the forgiving, gracious side of God. I can pull it off. But you can't experience forgiveness outside of God, okay? You can't experience grace outside of God. And it's also true that when God is judge, okay, when God is judge, he doesn't stop being forgiving. He's consistent. And like, you think about it with us, um, and I think sometimes parenting is one of the best analogies. My kids, okay, would probably, there's times where I'm, I seem kinder than at other times. You ever experienced that in your own life? There's times where you just feel happy or you feel good and you're like ready to forgive. And then there's other times where you just don't. You're mad or you're yelling, you're yelling at your kids or you've done that, okay? I've, I've done that where I'm like, well, well, like, there's something inconsistent in me, right? God's different. When, when, he, when he acts on being a judge, he doesn't cease to be forgiving or loving or kind or gracious. There's no contradiction in God. 
But he says, and this will be on the screen, in verse 7 he says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Maybe you read that and you remember another part in the Bible where it says that the children will not be judged for their father's sins. And you go, well, what is there a contradiction here? Is God saying he's going to judge until the third and fourth generation? What Are those people innocent? And you know that in our culture, in our context, sometimes we think, uh, we, don't, we don't like talking about judgment. We don't like talking about that side of God. But you know that it's actually incredibly comforting to know that God is going to judge. I'm going to show a, it's a minute and a half video clip in a second, and hopefully the sound will work. Uh, yesterday was, and it's kind of the whole weekend, but yesterday was Orange Shirt Day. And it was a day where Canada acknowledged what happened in the, with the residential schools and the horrible things that have been done. And sometimes those things were done in God's name. Uh, my daughter, Lucy, she went down to uh, Sunday school, but she, she came home from school and um, she was telling us about the history of Orange Shirt Day. She goes, do you know why it's an orange shirt that we wear? And uh, she went on to tell us the story. And I just want to show a little video clip because this ties into what we're, we're talking about. So you can go ahead, Corey. Hello, everyone. My name is Phyllis Webstad. I am Shawetmuk from the Strachemuk, Kennel Creek, Khatlstam, Dog Creek First Nation, which is about one and a half hours southwest from Williams Lake, BC. I grew up with my granny on the Dog Creek Reserve until I was 10 then moved with my auntie after she finished university. When I had just turned six, I was sent to the St. Joseph Indian Residential School near Williams Lake, a place we called the Mission. My granny bought me a shiny new orange shirt to go to school in. When I got there, I was stripped, my clothing taken away, including my new orange shirt, and I never saw it again. I was no longer excited to be going to school. I wanted to go home to Granny. I had to stay there for 300 sleeps. No matter how much all of us little kids cried, it didn't matter. No one listened to us. Our feelings didn't matter. We didn't matter. I am the third generation that attended residential school. Both my grandmother and mother attended the mission for 10 years each. Today is a day to honor and remember residential school survivors and their families. Every child matters, even if you're an adult. We must also remember those children that never made it and are no longer with us. Today is a day for survivors to tell their stories and for us to listen with open hearts. I am humbled and honored that you are all taking part in Orange Shirt Day. When I was in school, I didn't know my own history. So I am overjoyed that you are taking part and learning the true history of Canada's first peoples. Gukshjem, thank you. I don't know if you caught it, but she said in there that she's a, a third generation um, of, of people going to residential schools. And I was getting ready for this message, uh, and I couldn't not include this because it's something that we hear about on a regular basis and we should and 
it's an example of what the scriptures are talking about here. When, when you read the scriptures, God is often angry at, his, at people for causing oppression towards other people. A lot in scripture. There's groups of people that would, you know, were in a position of power and they used that power abusively over other people. And if you want to find out one of the things that angers God greatly, I touched on one of them this morning, is just idolatry. So worshiping another God besides God that angers God because that leads us away from who God is. It leads us away from love and grace and goodness. But one of the other things that you see often showing up in the Old Testament when God rebukes people through the prophets is he rebukes them for how they oppressed other people groups. It just angers him. And what he's saying, when he's saying that he's going to punish to the third and fourth generation, he, he's not saying innocent people are going to be punished for the sins of their parents. He's saying if these generations continue in these wicked ways, they will be judged. That's really what God's getting at. He's saying if, they, if people continue to reject his truth, to reject his ways, and they continue on in that, on that wicked path, even to the third and fourth generation, God will bring judgment. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly comforting where I go, like our, our world, if, if you look around long enough, you, you, you come to this realization, there's, it's messed up in a lot of places. There's a lot of corrupt leadership. There's a lot of evil things that happen. And what God reveals to us about himself here is comforting because God is saying, I'm not going to let this go on forever. Yes, I've given people free will. I've, I haven't created robots. He doesn't force us to worship him. He lets us make decisions. But he says, if people reject me generation after generation there will be judgment that is to come. That's comforting. Because the one judging is the perfect one. The one that does bring the judgment is the one that doesn't change. He is awesome. He is good. Do you want to know this? And we don't have time to, to, to do this in-depth study, but you won't find a place in the Old Testament where people cried out to God for forgiveness and he didn't, he didn't give it. Do you know that there's one time, okay, uh, that God, there's this prophet Jeremiah, Okay, and Jeremiah, God raises him up, and it's after years and years of people rejecting him. And he says, Jeremiah, you're going to go and you're going to proclaim my word, and people are going to not listen to you. And Jeremiah gets told by God, don't pray for these people. It's weird. Okay? I don't know if you've ever read Jeremiah and noticed that, but God actually tells him, don't pray for them. And you know why God says that? Because every time people come to God and ask for forgiveness, he gives it. But in Jeremiah's case, the reason God's saying it is because he's saying the people of Israel for generation after generation after generation after generation, they've rejected me, they've oppressed people, they've oppressed each other, they've been horrible to each other, and, and the judgment will come. And he says, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Well, the reason that's comforting is because God is revealing, he's saying, because if someone does pray, I will relent because of who I am. I'm forgiving, and I'm gracious, and I'm compassionate. It's incredibly comforting. So every time somebody is raised up to pray and seek God for forgiveness, God does relent. And, and, and one more scriptural example, and you can go look this up. The, Jonah, he's this prophet. He actually, he's one of the guys that quotes this verse, this like God is gracious verse that we're talking about. And he quotes it to God sarcastically. Because when God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, this horrible people, they've done horrible, terrible things. I want you to go preach to them. Jonah's mad because he goes, God, you're gracious and you're loving and you're kind. If I go to them, they're going to they're gonna turn away from their sin and they're not going to get judged. And that's actually what happens. And the, the book of Jonah ends kind of awkwardly. It just shows Jonah's up on this cliff and he's looking down and he's mad at God for not judging the people of Nineveh. Like that's literally how it ends. And you're like, that was a weird kind of 
ending, <laughs> but it just kind of shows like it's actually, it's, it's us, it's men and women that are more judgmental than God. We hold a grudge longer than God. We are less forgiving than God. We are less compassionate than God. God is gracious and merciful and compassionate and forgiving, and he does not change. And there is no contradiction in him. I'm just going to close with a story, and we're going to, we're going to do communion. Uh, and I'm just going to use a story to answer this last question. What does this teach us about how we are to relate to God? The fact that, the fact that God is, is a judge is, is a kind of a scary thing. Uh, but the fact that he's loving and kind and, forgiveness and, and forgiving and doesn't change is comforting. Uh, this weekend, I was at a youth rally, and I was speaking there. And on the Friday night service, uh, I got up and I spoke. And I just didn't, I wasn't sure, like, did this even connect with anybody? Like, did it make any difference? And I was just having a hard time. Like, sometimes when you go to speak at these things, you don't know the people, and you're kind of trying to make an introduction. You're trying to build trust, and you don't always go away feeling like you made any connection. Um, <laughs> and it's funny being at a youth rally. One of the things, we had this, like, really serious moment in prayer. I'll just tell you this before I tell you the story that we're going to wrap up with. We had this, like, pretty somber moment of prayer, and I felt like people got it. Okay, so there was like 60 youth, and, and, and I led them through this prayer, and you could just sense God's presence, and it was really special. Well, some of the youth had found out that I, I can backflip and do break, and break dance. And so anyway, we, we finished this prayer, and I'm like, I'm standing there, and, and I open my eyes. I'm about to like open up God's word, and somebody from the front row goes, can you backflip now? <laughs> like, and I was like, I don't think anybody heard anything <laughs> that I just said, right? Um, so I was kind of feeling a little bit, uh, you know, I didn't know if I connected. And I went to the, uh, the bonfire on Friday night. And this, this young lady, she was one of the counselors, she came up to me and she goes, um, are you Cal Maskery's son from Moncton? And I said, yeah, how did you know that? She goes, oh, I was at Harvest House. And, and then she, and it was such a funny way to tell a story. She looked at me with this smile and she goes, well, I'm, and she told me her name. She's like, I'm so-and-so. And she's like, I was a part of a cult for several years, and it really messed my mind up. She's like, they convinced me to turn away from my family. It was this big mess. And then she goes, and then I got involved in a lesbian relationship, and I moved to Moncton, where I did crack cocaine on the weekends, and I volunteered at your dad's ministry during the week. And, and she's like, tell me this, like, very brief. And then she goes, and then Jesus got a hold of my life, and he changed me, and now I'm the children's director at my church. And then she smiled like this, like that, just like big smile. And I was like, wow, like that was an incredible story. And so then she just unpacked it for me for a little bit, right? And I was like, this is incredible. Like I, I, I left that night like super encouraged by what she said. Like I didn't feel like what I shared at the sermon went very well, but what she shared with me, I was like, man, I just, something opened up. God did something in my heart. But what she was sharing with me, and I texted her, I was like, can I share a little bit of your story in, in, the, in the sermon on Sunday? Because what does this teach us about how we are to relate with God? She had grown up hearing about Jesus, but then she had gone far from him, got involved in all kinds of things, was doing cocaine on the weekends while she's volunteering at a Christian ministry, you know, living in this lesbian relationship. And then God just like plucked her out of it, and she knew. She knew to go back to God because she knew the truth of what we were reading about. God is gracious, and he is slow to anger, and he is forgiving, and he is kind. So she goes back to God, and she cries out for forgiveness, and he just touches her heart. And then she's, here she is at this campfire with this big smile on her face telling me the darkest parts of her story with joy because of what Jesus has done. And I'm listening to that going, only God can do that. And that's how you and I are supposed to, like, that's what this truth is supposed to do to us is where no matter where we get to, we're able to look back and be like, no, but God is so 